Good morning. Good to see you all this morning, and uh, we'll just see how things go as far as my voice. This is probably one of the weirdest, longest illnesses that my wife and I have had the uh, pleasure to share, and uh, felt great yesterday, got up this morning, and my voice is kind of in and out. Uh, so God is able. Amen. This Wednesday night, <coughs> we'll be finishing off 1 Samuel with a very sad chapter as we see the digression of Saul's move away from the Lord meet its end and his fate, and sadly, uh, along with his three sons. So I encourage you to read ahead 1 Samuel 31 and then join us on Wednesday night as we examine this chapter and make our way the following week into 2 Samuel. Now this morning we're going to look at our word for the year, which is blessed or blessed. And we'll look at it through the lens of our PowerPoint and the balance of that chapter. So would you open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And we'll read the whole of the chapter as I said. And our visit to our word for 2019 actually opens the door to a topic that is sadly controversial, yet it is undeniably biblical. And a little background before I introduce our title and topic this morning from our chapter. And I'll remind you, first of all, that in our studies of the Psalms, we found that it's not just one book, but rather there are five books that make up the 150 chapters of the Psalms as well as types of psalms, where each of the psalms has kind of an underwriting or underwritten theme to it, so to speak. We found there are royal psalms dedicated to the exaltation of God. We found that there are psalms of Zion reminding Israel of their place within God's kingdom and plan. We talked about the fact that there are psalms of ascent that elevate the mind above the mundane things of life and even some that were incorporated with the feast days as pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem. We learned about imprecatory psalms, which were petitions of the king on behalf of the army and nation of Israel for victory over their enemies. And we also found within the psalms penitential psalms. Psalms where David was pleading for forgiveness, as we'll see here this morning, as well as other authors. And we also found that there are wisdom Psalms that exalt the wisdom of God, Psalm 119, being the primary example of a wisdom psalm and the authority of God's word. Do you believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God this morning? Amen. Now, we also recognize that some of the psalms actually fit nicely into two of the categories of the type of psalms. And that's the case with ours this morning, as we find that it is indeed a wisdom psalm, and it is as well a penitential psalm. And the pairing of these qualities is of great significance, as we'll find out in our study this morning. Now, the psalm we have before us is the record of King David's response to the confrontation of Nathan when he had sinned with Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah. Now, I've got a rather lengthy backstory for you, so to speak, to read from 2 Samuel, but it will set our course this morning. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty six through 12, the first part of 7, we're told when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, David had, uh, had him murdered, she mourned for her husband. 
And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done had displeased who? The Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, uh, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for uh, prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. He didn't say you the man. He said, you are the man. And Nathan then lists a series of this life consequences for David's sin, including the death of the child that would be born to he and Bathsheba. Now, it's interesting. I think we need to pause for a moment and remind ourselves that even in the death of this young child, we can see the mercy of God because can you imagine this boy's life growing up as the son of this sinful relationship? And secondly, we need to remind ourselves that when God takes someone to heaven, it's never punishment. It's always an upgrade. Somebody say amen. Now... The second thing we need to remember is that David is told because of what he did with Bathsheba, because of what he did against Uriah, that he had given the enemies of God a great opportunity to blaspheme. Now, after Nathan said to David, you are the man, after David was confronted about his sin that he thought he had gotten away with and was keeping a secret, David, after the confrontation, finally arrives at this place in 2 Samuel 12, 13, where he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Remember, all sin is against the Lord, even though the action may have impacted people. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Aren't you glad the blood of Jesus has covered all of our sins? Now, Psalm 32 is actually a look behind the scenes at David's life during this season of silence when he was living in unconfessed sin. He's going to tell us what it felt like. He's going to tell us how it impacted him personally and spiritually and what he found when he finally confessed what he had done to the Lord. And we find very similar content of this type of thinking and background in Psalm 51, making those two psalms, psalms of wisdom as well as penitential psalms. And the reason it's important we recognize these paired components is because it is wise to repent of unconfessed sin. There we go. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I thought I'd have to draw it out of you this morning. Now listen, repentance is not a popular subject today. 
And the fact is, we need to remember that five of the seven churches, the only direct address of Jesus concerning the church outside of what he said to Peter and building the church around him and that first gospel sermon is the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And five of the seven churches were told by Jesus in the year 93, 94, 95 AD, somewhere in that region, that they needed to repent. He told Ephesus, you need to repent of religiosity. He told Pergamus, you need to repent of idolatry. He told Thyatira, you need to repent of immorality. He told Sardis, you need to repent of complacency. And he told Laodicea, you need to repent of apostasy. And the only two churches that were not told to repent by Jesus were the church at Smyrna, the suffering church, and the church at Philadelphia, the loving church. And the Lord Jesus called the church to repent of these saints, first of all, because what they were doing was sinful. Idolatry is a sin. Immorality is a sin. Apostasy is a sin. No question about these things. But secondly, the reason Jesus told them to repent is because when the church is living in sin, when the church has unconfessed sin, it gives the enemies of God the chance to blaspheme and it robs the church of its power and influence over an ever darkening world. And therefore, our topic and title for this Sunday morning of blessing is simply the blessings of repentance. The blessings of repentance. Now, repentance and blessing aren't often paired in our thinking. Repentance is usually paired with guilt and shame and the other things associated with it commonly in our thoughts. But the fact is, we also need to pair repentance with beauty and joy and wonder and restoration as we're going to learn from David this morning that when we repent, we regain access to what was forfeited during a season of unconfessed sin or silence about it. Now, Acts 3.19 also tells us, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that, there's a connector there, so that times of refreshing may come from what? The presence of the Lord. Now, since our word for the year is blessed, and times of refreshing would certainly be categorized within blessings, then we can see that repentance releases blessings in our lives. And yes, listen, repentance is something that we do even after we're saved. Five of the seven churches that received letters from Jesus in Revelation prove it to be so. Now, (coughs) excuse me, through King David's own experience with unconfessed sin and its consequences, we're going to learn about the blessings of repentance together, even in our own lives, even as was true for one labeled by God as a man after his own heart. Are you ready to learn of the blessings of repentance this morning? So stand and read with me, please, the whole of Psalm 32, and then we'll revisit it in three sections. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality turned into the drought of summer. 
I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful psalm this morning. Thank you for the reminders within it. Thank you that you are a merciful and loving God, and you are the repairer of the breach. Lord, the restorer of years eaten by the canker worms of sin. And Lord, we thank you that your thoughts toward us are of peace and not of evil, and that in you we have a future hope. So we thank you for what we're going to learn from you this morning and give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first of our three observations comes from verses 1 through 5, where King David actually starts with the blessings of forgiveness. And he ends with the means through which that forgiveness was obtained. And then in the middle, we're going to find in verses 2 to 4 exactly where or how the Lord brought about his repentance. Now, Remember the very first psalm, Psalm 1, often referred to as the preface psalm. It set the stage for the other 149 that would follow. It begins by drawing a contrast between the life experiences of the godly and the ungodly. Now in Psalm 1, 1 and 2, we're told that there is a blessing for the man, the woman, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but obviously in contrast, his delight is in the law of the Lord, a phrase associated with the word of God. And in his law, he meditates occasionally. How often? Day and night. In other words, he governs his actions by day and those by night by the word of God. Now, this digression of walking, standing, and sitting reminds us that the ungodly world, the ways of the sinner, and aligning ourselves with the scornful is not the path to the blessed life. And in our chapter, the blessed life begins with forgiveness. And aren't you glad that's where our journey to heaven begins, by having our sin forgiven, by it being covered by the blood of Jesus. And it appears that King David could never get too far away from his own thoughts of having been forgiven much, and neither should we. We should always be mindful that the blood of Christ has covered all of our sins. I'm thinking of uh, Billy Graham and a comment in an interview he made some years ago. If he could go back and do things differently, what would he do differently? And he said, I would talk more about the cross and the blood of Christ. And I always found that to be (coughs) such an... An unusual statement coming from him because in every message he talked about the cross and he talked about the blood of Christ, but you cannot talk too much about how our forgiveness has been extended or imputed to us. 
Now the blessings of forgiveness are covered sin and imputed righteousness. And they are stated in the negative here as not imputed iniquity, but the end result is the same. And that is a spirit in us that is not the spirit of deceit. Now, the method of obtaining such a blessed existence is in verse 5, where David says he uh, confessed his transgressions to the Lord and forgiveness came. And we also find within our text the reason repentance is required from things like transgression, sin, and iniquity. The fact is transgression simply means to revolt against God. And therefore, his word. Sin means to commit an offense, which requires a moral standard by which offenses are measured against. And that, again, is the word of God. Iniquity means perversity or even mischief, which obviously has many manifestations. And in John 16, 7 through 11, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart... I will send him to you, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, I mentioned this to you before, and it bears repeating this morning. We live in an age where there are many people who, when they hear something that is convicting in church. They don't change their ways, they just change churches. They go somewhere where they're not going to hear things that are convicting, and yet we're told the primary ministry of the presence of the Holy Spirit interacting with humankind on earth is to convict the world of sin. It's okay to be convicted. I'm not very convinced. It's okay to be convicted. Matter of fact, you should be convicted. Listen. I got to do these messages long before you ever hear them. And I sit in my office convicted by the things I run across every single week. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts down to areas in our lives that are illustrated by the joint and marrow, the heart of all things. It's good to be convicted. It's good to hear the word of God. It's good to be challenged by the word of God. It's healthy to be called to repentance and to repent because of what we hear. And listen, the lack of repentance is the leading cause of powerlessness in the church today. Billy Sunday said over a hundred years ago, there wouldn't be so many non-church going people if there weren't so many non-going churches. There wouldn't be so many non-church-going people if there weren't so many non-going churches. Listen, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us. David said, when I was silent about my sin, I felt like an old man. He said, I felt so guilty, I had no vitality until I acknowledged my sin, opened up about my iniquity, and confessed my transgressions, and then forgiveness came. And vitality is an interesting word. The Greek or the Hebrew word rather can mean moisture. It can mean juice. It also means, and more appropriately in our context, vigor. David was saying, I was as dry as a summer day in the Middle East. And listen, not all dry times are due to unconfessed sin. Sometimes they just come. Anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? Sometimes dry times just come. 
but some are associated with sin and therefore repentance is in order. Now, here's our first point. Here's our first observation from David's experience. Here's what I believe he would communicate to us in summary form, the Holy Spirit being the he. Listen this morning, the greatest blessing of repentance is restored intimacy with God. The greatest blessing of repentance is restored intimacy with God. Now think about it. Here we have in front of us the man after God's own heart who maintained that moniker throughout this time, even though his experience and his intimacy level with God had changed. And the fact is, his season of silence about his sin turned the hand of blessing (coughs) that he had long experienced into a heavy hand that robbed him of the intimacy and joy of fellowship he once knew. Now, listen close. David didn't lose his salvation. David didn't cease being the man after God's own heart. He erred exceedingly and played the fool. I'm glad none of us have ever done that. But listen, the most precious commodity in his life and ours suffered momentary damage and the vigor that caused him to slay Goliath and spare Saul had dried up in him. And listen, when he acknowledged his sin to the Lord, when he stopped trying to hide his iniquity, when he confessed his transgressions to the Lord, the Lord forgave his sin. And in Psalm 66, 16 to 20, the psalmist says again, come and hear all you who fear God. And I will declare what he has done for my what? My soul. I cried to him with my mouth and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. Again, David uh, speaking. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Now, listen this morning. Before anybody checks out and says, I haven't done anything even remotely close to what David did. I've been faithful to my spouse and I certainly haven't hired someone to kill somebody else. Or even as David uh, had his general bring back the troops uh, and let Uriah be killed when he was engaged in battle. Before we start thinking, I haven't done anything along those lines. Let me throw this at you. Are you ready? Listen, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You said that very quietly. Now listen, not not doing what you know to do is sin, just like doing what you know not to do. And that means David's silence is equal to our inactivity when we know the good we ought to do. It can rob us of our vitality just as much as doing what we know we shouldn't. And listen, our Christian life should be one of thriving, not just surviving. A Christian life should be one of zeal. It should be one of passion. It should be one of great joy because of what has been done for us by Christ on the cross. And listen, maybe God has been telling you not to do something. Maybe he's been telling you you ought to do something. And if you haven't responded to what he said either way, you need to repent. Amen? What what happens after that? Times of refreshing comes from the Lord instead of a dried up spiritual vigor. Let's look at 6 and 7 once again. 
Now David says, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Songs of deliverance. And David immediately begins to describe the restored intimacy with the Lord in the form of just that. Songs of deliverance. God has delivered him and he was able to sing once again rather than being silent. And the first thing for us to note about this is that this is the practice of everyone, say everyone, everyone who is godly. Now, actually, the word cause is not in the original Hebrew manuscripts, though the insertion doesn't infringe on the meaning at all. It highlights it for us in English. But here's what I want you to make note of. What the text actually reads is like this. For this, everyone who is godly prays. The text actually says, for this, everyone who is godly prays, and that this would be the forgiving of iniquity, of their sin, and the blessings of covered sin, and forgiven transgression. So this is something that the godly pray for. Everyone who is godly prays for this. Now we have teachers today who say that, Once we have been forgiven, all sin, past, present, and future has already been forgiven, so there's no need for anyone to confess their sin. Many in a movement called the Free Grace Movement today teach that. And 1 John 1, 9 and 10 says, if we confess our sin, please note that famous verse starts with a condition. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not where? It's not in us. Now, these same teachers today deny that John's letters were actually written to believers. They believe that this letter was written to non-believers because of the content of this verse and their particular interpretation of what it means to confess your sin. Now, the first problem is this. John said, if we confess our sin. Now, if this was written to non-believers, John is numbering himself amongst the non-believers, and we know that's simply not true. And listen, if all you need to do to be saved is to believe and not repent, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then why would God bother to instruct us in the way that we should go? Why would he differentiate between the life of the godly and the ungodly like he does in Psalm chapter 1? Why the corrective element of all the epistles? Why the letters to the Corinthians, which corrected their spiritual thinking? Why the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? Or any of the things like that in any of the epistles for that matter. And on top of all that, why would God discipline us if everything is well Once we originally believe those whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, does he just do that because that's what he likes to do? Or is there actually a reason for it? Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Anybody else want to get in on this? Is there a reason for his discipline? Absolutely, of course. So there has to be a standard of measure by which we can govern and direct our lives. Now, David begins to illustrate the, ble- illustrate the blessings of repentance and forgiveness in contrast to lost vitality, groaning, and aching bones. 
He says, everyone who is godly prays to the Lord this way, which results in God being our hiding place from the floodwaters of life, our life preserver during times of trouble, and the one who restores songs of deliverance as he surrounds us with his presence. The prophet Zephaniah put it like this in 317 to 18, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are, assembly who are among you to whom its burden or its reproach is a burden. Now, Zephaniah is pointing to those who have a burden for the nation of Israel, and we should have a burden for our darkening nation and world today as well. Amen? And what David is reminding us of as he calls people to repentance is what Zephaniah reveals to us when he says, the Lord will sing over those to whom the reproach of their nation is a burden. The Lord will sing over those who are burdened about the condition of the church today as well. And this doesn't mean a literal flood of waters, nor does it mean an absence of trouble. But what it does mean is being quieted with his love instead of disturbed by his heavy hand upon us. It means rejoicing over us with gladness instead of our groaning all day long. It means singing over us instead of having a life described like a loss of vitality or the drought of summer. Now, David was revealing the blessings of repentance in order that others might experience the same blessings through the confession of sin, iniquity, and transgressions. Now, here's the next thing we need to remember about this subject that is always viewed or often, most often viewed in a negative light. Listen, repentance will always be rewarded, not regretted. Repentance will always be rewarded, not regretted. Now, I've reserved our definition or the definition of repentance until now in light of our point. Now, the Greek word is metanoeo. And it's a compound of two Greek words. Meta meaning, (coughs) excuse me, after and noeo meaning to exercise the mind. That's the literal meaning. The figurative meaning is to think differently afterwards. It could also be translated as to reconsider. Now, to after reconsider implies there needs to be an object which has been considered in the first place, and that object is obviously the Word of God. It implies a consideration of facts that result in appropriate and associated actions. In other words, to change your mind and actions back into alignment with God's Word. Now, in Ezekiel eighteen twenty-five to 31, the prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel. Remember, Israel means prince of God or governed by God. So when you have a situation like this where God is talking about his character and nature, it's something we can apply to ourselves as well that is not strictly limited to national Israel. The way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? 
When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he has committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will do what? Judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Next word. Repent and turn from most of your transgressions, the really hard ones. No, from all your transgressions, so iniquity will not be what? Your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. You know, people today are saying the way of the Lord is not fair. And what that translates into is that they want to practice things that the Bible prohibits without the fear of consequence. And therefore, they deem the word of God to be unfair. Case in point, this week, this last Tuesday, a British court ruled that belief in the Bible was incompatible with human dignity. Did you hear that? A British court handed down a decision that the Bible is incompatible with human dignity. And this case came involving a doctor named David Macrath, who is a devout Christian who had worked at the same facility for 26 years. And he was fired because he refused to call a biological man a woman. Now the court's ruling, now listen to this. The court's ruling said this, and I quote, Belief in Genesis 127, lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to transgenderism, in our judgment, are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others, specifically here, transgender individuals, end quote. Then the court added this, insofar as those beliefs form part of his wider faith, his wider faith also does not satisfy the requirement of being worthy of respect in a democratic society, not incompatible with human dignity and not in conflict with the fundamental rights of others, end quote. In other words, the court said, believing The Bible is incompatible with society today. Now, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces what? Repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Case in point, the article we just read. And the fact is, instead of considering the fact biblically and changing their minds and actions accordingly, the court condemned the Bible as incompatible with human dignity, setting themselves above God and questioning the word of God, which is exactly what Satan did in the garden with Eve. And it's a decision that if not repented of, will be regretted 
forever. And in Acts 17, 30 to 31, Acts says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to what? Repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, that's Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given us assurance of this to all, raising him from the dead. God calls us to repent because his ways are better. No court can overrule him. No court can overturn his decisions without regretting it later. And listen, that includes the court of human opinion, including our own. Now, let's read 8 through 11 one more time. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which are notoriously cooperative animals which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I was reminded of a statement made by the late Warren Wearsby, the great Bible commentator, and he said, This chapter presents to us three choices as to how we will interact with God and how God will treat us in response. He said, first of all, God will treat us like a sponge with his hand heavy on us, squeezing out anything unwanted from us. He said, or we can be treated like a person, protected and hidden in him, or we can choose to be treated like an animal, forcefully guided like a horse in the right Direction. Now, God is going to get us to do things His way because we have His Spirit. Amen? But we get to choose how we arrive there. In verse 8, the Lord offered guidance with His eyes, speaking of wisdom and insight. David says, Or we can be guided like the horse and the mule with a bit and bridle, who will never do things right without being forced into doing so. Now, I have to say, I'm glad that I've always chosen to be treated like a person. And I've never done anything or hesitated. That's a bunch of malarkey. God is faithful to squeeze us. Amen. He is faithful to guide us. And when we need the bit and bridle, he'll bridle us up and get us going in the right direction. I would just as soon be treated like a person as he hides us and protects us with his covering hand. Now, David draws a clear contrast here between the wicked and the righteous and his closing thoughts. And that contrast is true in every way in every season of history. And it's simply this. God's people are to be markedly different than the people of the world. Sorrows await the wicked. Mercy, gladness, and joy await the upright in heart. The Proverbs say in 10, to 25, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. To do evil is like sport to a who? To a fool. But a man of understanding has wisdom. The fear of the wicked will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. Again, contrasting experiences. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Now listen, the lines are being blurred in this age of tolerance between sexes, classes, 
and religion and just about anything where distinctions are made between people. And this sadly has made its way into the church, both morally and spiritually, though you really could make a case for those two being the same thing. Now, all this is paving a way for a man of sin. His false prophet is going to arise as well. And they're going to deceive the world with false religion that equalizes everyone and everything, including personal beliefs and behaviors. Now, in Romans 1, 28 to 32, we're told, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, tune in here, not only do the same, but also what? Approve of those who practice them. An article popped up yesterday that the nation of Australia has now approved abortion all the way up to birth. It's an inventor of, uh, this is an invention of evil things. Now listen, approving of the practice of sin is evidence of not having retained God in your knowledge. And having been given over to a debased mind. And this is the day we live in. And this is why we hear of decisions from courts like we just noted. Now listen. There's one key element to a person's life turning around. A nation turning around. Or a world turning around. And that one thing is not on God's end. God has already done what is necessary for people and the world to change. He sent his son to die for our sins. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then on top of that, he gave us his spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. And in contrast, we're told sorrows are the destiny of the wicked. But those who trust in the Lord will be surrounded by his mercy and be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. Now, here's how we do that. Listen, we've said this before multiple ways, and we'll say it again in the future, I'm sure, because it will always be true. And listen this morning, life is at its best when lived in alignment with God's word. Life is at its best when lived in alignment with God's word. The Lord says through David, don't be stubborn. Don't live however you want and decide your own moral code when it conflicts with my word. It shows you don't understand who I am and it shows you don't believe my word. He says, sorrows await the wicked and wickedness always lead to sorrows. But those who trust in the Lord shall be surrounded by his mercy. And that's why he would also write in Psalm 37, 3 to 7, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. 
He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Now, it's always been a bit of a conundrum to me that we can easily trust God with our eternity, but we have problems trusting him with today. We have problems obeying him in the here and now, and yet we believe him for the city paved with streets of gold whose foundations is 12 precious stones and gates of a single pearl surrounding the city. We trust him with our eternity, but we don't act as though we trust him with today. And I think it's particularly troubling in light of the things we see happening in our world today, happening in the church today, where there are many who are siding with the court in England that the things that God has written in his word are incompatible with decent human behavior. I hear within the church, and particularly young people say this about same-sex relationships. Well, what's the matter if two people are in love and they're not hurting anyone else? Well, they are hurting someone else. They're hurting the other person by engaging in a relationship that has been prohibited by God. I've had young people say, I've heard young people say, well, what are they supposed to do? Live alone the rest of their life? Absolutely. If it's in conflict, confliction with the word of God, yes, that's exactly what we do. Well, that's going to be hard. Well, so is breaking away from every other sin. God didn't say the way's easy. He said the way's hard. And listen, self-denial is part of the package that God has offered to us. And listen, if your opinion doesn't line up with the Bible, the Bible's not the one that's wrong. You are. And all of this that we see today becomes from having or comes from having a low view of God. Listen, he's the king of kings and Lord of lords. He said, listen now, the first thing he said when he spoke all of creation into existence in the spans of six night day cycles was let there be light. And there was light. Four days later, he created the heavenly luminaries. God doesn't need the sun for there to be light. He himself is light. There's no sun in the heavenly kingdom, for God himself is the light. And listen, therefore, we need to understand what God says. That's the way it is. And listen, heaven is not a democracy. It's a theocracy. God is in control. He's on the throne. He will never be voted out or uprooted or his decisions overturned. So we may as well live like that's true in this life. And when he says repent from this or that, then that's exactly what we ought to do. When he says don't do this, we ought not to do that. When he says make sure you're doing that, we ought to go out and do that. Somebody say something this morning. Because he's God. He's God. He is the supreme being by definition. That's what that title means. And we need to remember his name is Yehoshua. His title is God. He occupies the office of God. He is the supreme being. He is the omniscient one who knows all. He is the omnipotent one who can do all. He is the omnipresent one who is everywhere at the same time simultaneously because he cannot be limited by buildings that men build or even the globe or the universe. He's a 
king of kings. He is a perfect judge and he is righteous in all of his ways. And the sooner we line up with his word, the better our life is going to be. Somebody say amen this morning. David got it. And David learned it through blowing it. And therefore, we need to remember the words of the Proverbs that though the righteous may fall, seven times they rise again. Maybe you completely blew it. Maybe not like David. But listen, because of God and his mercy and his desire for your life, you can rise again today. You don't have to live in a drought of vitality. You can live with vigor. You can live with a God confidence that David had when he saw Goliath challenging the armies of Israel. And he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares defy the army of the living God? Listen, today you can have the strength to stand up and say, I don't care what the court says. I don't care what the world says. All I care about is what God says. And I'm going to do what he says and nothing else. Listen, that's living. That's living. That's a powerful life. That's not a compromised life. That's not a gutless life. That's a blessed life. And that's what we want to have as his children. Amen. Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. Thank you that David, Lord, put pen to the page and the spirit inspired and guided to write things that are for our learning, as Paul wrote in Romans 15. So may we learn from these things, Lord, that as David thought he had a secret, and it was revealed that it was no secret at all. Not only did you know, you told Nathan. And I'm sure there were many others who through the gossip mill had found out or heard of what David did with Bathsheba and to Uriah. And Lord, may we do as David did. May we come to you and say we have erred, And ask for your forgiveness and know that your mercy will surround us and you will restore songs of deliverance. And listen, I cannot preach a message like this this morning and not offer to you the opportunity. As David said in his confession, I have sinned against the Lord. So he made his confession to the Lord. And listen, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and walk down front and say, You know what? I've done something wrong that I need to repent of. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do business like David did between you and the Lord. And maybe there's something going on in your life that shouldn't be. Maybe there's something that should be going on on in your life that isn't. And as we established this morning, both are sins before God and both therefore need to be repented of. Listen. God is always working on us. That's why Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's not done with you yet. There's things in you he wants to squeeze out of you. There's things in me he wants to squeeze out of me. There's things I'm not doing he wants me to start doing. There's things you're not doing he wants you to start doing. But listen, I'm not trying to get every hand up here in this room. I'm not trying to get everybody to respond. I'm trying to get some who need to do business with God that times of refreshing can come again from the Lord to happen right here and right now and for you to leave this place singing a song of deliverance. That's my heart's desire this morning. 
So listen, if that's you, if God has spoken to you, and I know he's spoken to many here this morning, if God has said, you know what, let's deal with that right here, right now, permanently, and finally, that you can go your way with renewed vitality and vigor and have that God confidence that you once had. Maybe there's some here today who become stagnant. Maybe there's some here today who have a long history of serving God, and maybe you have become complacent in your relationship just because of longevity and you want and long for that new Christian zeal to be restored in your life, that new believer vigor to be restored in your life. Maybe God is telling you, come on now, let's get busy. There are no bench sitters in God's kingdom. Everybody gets in the game. Everybody participates. Each one does his share. Maybe that's what God is saying to you this morning. And listen, with every eye closed and every head bowed this morning, if you fall into those categories or any other where God has been doing business with you through his word this morning, and you want to say, I repent and I turn from these things and I'm going to follow hard after God and live in alignment with his word from this day forward. If that's you, just going to ask you to slip up your hand very quietly. And I want to pray for you this morning. God bless all of you. Just slip up your hand. Whether you need to start something or you need to stop something, just say, Lord, I repent right here, right now. Refresh me. God bless all of you. (coughs) And Father, we are grateful for this opportunity this morning. Lord, we thank you that when we make this move toward you, as David did after being confronted by Nathan, and he finally arrives at the place where that which he thought was secret, where he said, I've sinned against the Lord. Lord, we thank you that what we see in this chapter tells us that for his restoration, there was no grace period. There was just grace, period. And we thank you that that is true for those who've lifted their hands this morning and those who should have. That, Lord, we can come to that place where we recognize that we're either doing something you've forbidden or we're not doing something you've commanded. And when we put our hand to the plow or remove our hand from evil, you surround us. We're hidden in you once again. And the wonderful intimacy that we so desire and maybe even once have is restored immediately. And we thank you for the message we have in front of us through David this morning. We also thank you, Lord, that this was something that was grievous to you. And that you told us through Second Samuel, you were displeased with the man after your own heart. And yet, because you are a God of grace, because you are a God of mercy, you restored David. And no longer was his vigor gone, but he was filled with songs of deliverance, remembering the magnitude of all he had been forgiven of. Help us, Lord, to have that zeal from this day forward. Thank you for the opportunity to make things right with you. And Lord, I pray that for those who've had a practice going on in their life that they shouldn't have, that they would heed the counsel you gave to the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Go your way and sin no more. Help them to live in alignment with your word and help those, Lord, who are saying, I need to get with it to live in alignment with your directives, to go and do whatever it is you've called them to do, to reach this world with the gospel or to serve or do their share, whatever it may be. We thank you, Lord, for your love, for your mercy, for your kindness to us. We thank you most of all 
that you demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were yet ungodly, Christ died for us. So we thank you for this this morning. Help us never to move away from that as David stayed close to that in his own thoughts when he was restored. Restore these now, I pray, God, with renewed vitality and zeal for your house and your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Listen, repentance is a blessing. Amen? There's great things that await those who repent. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to what? Repentance. See how important it is to him? And if it's important to him, it needs to be important to us. So, listen, go out with joy. Tell somebody about Jesus this week. Speak his name. I've told you before, I'll tell you again. Just speak his name. Maybe, oh, I'm not an eloquent street preacher. I'm not a a street evangelist. I can't engage. Just speak his name. There's power in his name. Because his name, Yeshua, or Yehoshua, and translated into our language, Jesus means God is salvation. So listen, just speak his name. Who knows what door of opportunity that could open up? Just walk by somebody and say, Jesus. (laughs) Just say it. Is there power in the name of Jesus? Hey, you know what? Maybe somebody else has been planting seeds and you just watered it simply by one name. Because Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. There's power, there's salvation in the name of Jesus. Speak. Will you do that this week? Listen, if you can't go out and break the ice like some of our wonderful evangelists were doing at the booth yesterday and Friday night, telling people about Jesus, dissecting the word, walking them down the Romans road. If that's not your thing, if you don't feel confident in that, you know Jesus' name. Just say it, just speak it, and see what happens after that. Will you do that this week? Even if it's a hit and run. Jesus, and you keep walking. Just speak his name to somebody. Amen? Okay, you said you would. You said it in church. And you said it before God. So now, get her done. Amen? Would you all stand?